again. We're going to continue reading The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind by William Kamkwamba and Brian Miller. Chapter 5, Malawi Begins to Starve. Part of the answer arrived in late September, not long after taking our final exams. Gilbert and I went to the trading center to play a few games of Bawa. As we walked back to his house, I noticed something odd. About a dozen people were gathered in his yard, talking in low, worried voices. They were mostly women, each wearing brightly colored headscarves like my own mother and carrying an empty basket. Who are these people? I asked. They've run out of food in the far villages, Gilbert said. These women have come to ask my father for handouts, or Ganyu. Some of them have walked for days. Ganyu was another word for day labor or small jobs such as clearing fields, digging ridges for a little money or food. It's how many farmers in Malawi made a living when times were hard. But I had never seen this many people at once. What's your father going to do, I said. He's going to feed them, Gilbert answered. He has no choice. He is their chief. What Gilbert said was true. The drought had destroyed all of the crops in the countryside and the families in the smaller villages had run out of food. Their storage rooms were empty and now they were hungry. I came home and told my father what I had just witnessed. He'd also seen the lines of women but didn't seem too concerned. He explained that the government always kept giant stocks of maize for emergencies. In tough times like these, they sold it on the market for a reduced price so that everyone could afford to eat. Don't worry, he said. Whatever the case may be, our family has never gone hungry. A few days later, however, my father returned from the trading center where a group of farmers had held a rally. They had delivered some terrible news. A few dishonest men in the government had sold our emergency maize and taken off with the money. They're saying there's nothing left, he told my mother. This year will be a disaster. My mother's face seemed stricken. Only God can help us, she whispered. After that, hunger came to Malawi. Due to the shortage of maize, the price doubled in the market. When this happened, people started hunting for food in the forest. One evening before dinner, I was feeling a bit hungry, so I, I walked next door to see if I could snatch a few mangoes from Mr. Mbali's tree. When I arrived, he and his family were sitting down to steaming plates of food. Just in time, I said. But when I looked closer, I realized what the Mbali's were eating. Pumpkin leaves and stewed green mangoes. They weren't even ripe and I'm sure they tasted awful. You'll find no food here, Mr. Mowali said, wrinkling his nose as he chewed. Later, I saw several men digging ridges in Mowali's field for Ganyu. They were from outer villages and each walked away carrying a handful of those same green mangoes. A few days later, while walking through the trading center, I saw something else I'd never seen. Women had spread out plastic tarps and were selling gaga. Gaga are the clear colored outer layers or chaff that are removed from the maize kernels in the mill. It's mostly garbage left on the mill floor and tossed away. Farmers fed it to their chickens and pigs. I'd like to use gaga in my bird traps, but I'd never seen people eat it. Yet here, 
it was selling in the market for 300 kwacha, a pale. Three times what it normally costs, a group of women held metal buckets and crowded around the sellers, pushing one another to get some. Move away, I was here first. We're all hungry, sister. There's no firsts in that. When I returned an hour later, all the gaga was gone. Right then I felt a shock pass through me as if someone had shaken me awake in the night. I started running home. Until then, I hadn't worried much about our own situation. Being 13 years old and always hungry explained some of that. Each meal, I'd stick out my plate and ask for seconds, saying, That's right, keep it coming. Sure, I knew about the problems throughout the country, but for some reason, I always assumed they were happening to someone else. Now, as I headed home, I grew more and more afraid. When I reached the house and opened the door to the storage room, I nearly fainted. Only two bags of grain remained. In my mind, they were already gone. I started doing the hunger math. Two bags of maize wouldn't last two months. In three months, we'd be starving. Worse, there were still 210 days, about seven months. Our next until our next harvest. We hadn't even planted one seed, and once we did plant, there was no guarantee that it would rain or we would even have fertilizer. A few days later, my father started rounding up our goats to sell in the market. In Malawi, your animals are your most prized possessions, a farmer's only token of wealth and class. Now we were, we were trading them for a few pails of maize. The men who ran the Kanyeya stands selling fried meat had enormous power now. The prices they offered for goats, pigs, and cows went lower each day. Yet people still lined up to sell. I noticed one of the goats was Mankala, one of my favorites. Unlike the other goats, he loved to play. He'd let me grab his horns and wrestle in the courtyard. He and Kamba had also become friends and would chase each other around the kitchen, irritating my mother. Papa, why are you selling our goats? I asked. He turned to me. A week ago, the price was 500. Now it's 400. I'm sorry, William, but if we wait any longer, we'll get nothing. The goats were tied by the legs with rope and already crying. Kamba heard the commotion and came to investigate. When he saw Mankalala being led down the trail with the others, he started to bark and jump. Mankalala then turned around as if to plead for help. He knew his fate, but as much as it hurt me inside, I had to watch him go. What could I do? My family had to eat. In early November, I started walking up as usual at 4 a.m. to make my ridges. On the first morning when I walked inside to have my breakfast, my father met me in the darkness. No fala today, he said. Huh? It's time to start cutting back. We need to save our food. By this time, our supply of maize was just one and a half bags. Breakfast was the first to go, and I wondered what would be next, but instead of complaining, I drank a big cup of water, grabbed my hoe, and went to meet Jeffrey in the fields. I told him about skipping breakfast. Can you believe it? I asked, but my cousin simply shrugged. You're 
Just starting that today, he said, I haven't had breakfast in two weeks. I'm getting used to it. In the early morning, the weather still was cool and I could dig my ridges with great energy. But by 7 a.m., my stomach had woken up and realized it was empty. It growled and rumbled and demanded to be filled. Soon the sun was high in the sky and sucking all of my strength. The only thing keeping me awake was my father marching past. Make those ridges better, he shouted. But I'm too hungry, Papa. Think about next year's harvest, son. Try your best. It was true. My ridges looked crooked as if a slithering snake had dug them. Across the field, Jeffrey was hard at work. Mr. Jeffrey, I called out, you dig my ridges today and I'll dig yours tomorrow. Can we make this deal? I'll think about it, he said, gasping for breath. But it sounds like the same deal as yesterday. I was trying to raise my cousin's spirits. Ever since his father died, he hadn't been the same. He looked sad and sometimes he stayed in his room for an entire day and didn't speak to anyone. He was also sickly. At a recent trip to the clinic, the doctor said he had anemia, which is caused by not having a healthy diet. I later discovered that breakfast wasn't the only thing Jeffrey was skipping. Food was running low all around. I'm joking, I shouted, but seriously, man, you don't look good. Take a break and get some rest. I have no choice, he said, swinging his hoe. You know my deal. I also knew that Jeffrey wouldn't be returning to school in the next term. Because of the drought and losing her husband, Jeffrey's mother didn't have the money to pay his school fees. In any way, she needed Jeffrey and his brother Jeremiah to work and provide food. That day, I pretended not to know. Soon, your man Kamkwamba will be in secondary school where he belongs, I said, wearing trousers and walking tall. He'll find us there, Jeffrey said. We older boys have plans for Kamkwamba. You can't touch him. Oh, you wait and see. Jeffrey wasn't the only one changing. Kamba was also slowing down. I'd always known that his best years were behind him back when he lived on the estate, but now his age was starting to show. And ever since the drought, he'd grown thinner. The food I was feeding him at night just wasn't enough. I guess. As he got slower, the mice in the fields outwitted him and other dogs beat him to the scraps in the garbage piles. Kamba no longer chased chickens around the courtyard, but stayed in the shade and slept. I was beginning to see his ribs. One night, when I tossed a ball of Nsima for him to eat, he lost sight of it and it landed right on his head. What's the problem, old man, I teased. He leaned over and sucked down the food in one gulp. Some things didn't change. December arrived with dark skies and heavy rain. All across the region, farmers did their best to plant seed for the next harvest, yet many had abandoned their fields in order to search for food. It wasn't long before their land was choked with weeds. My father managed to plant a small plot of maize, but without any fertilizer, He also found enough seed for half an acre of tobacco, which would prove a lifesaver in the months to come. What began as drought and hunger in Malawi soon evolved into a full-blown famine. That winter, it would tighten its grip until few people were left standing. 
Those looking for food began to cluster in the trading center and along the roads. Groups of men carrying their hoes went house to house asking for work, their clothes soaked from the rain and covered in mud. At each place they heard the same reply, we have nothing to give. While the men searched for Ganyu, their wives gathered at the chief's house, where Gilbert passed out bags of flour at the door. Already hundreds of people had received food and more kept coming. They carried children who cried from empty bellies, and some women were so weak they fainted once they arrived. After Gilbert's mother nursed them back to health, they continued down the road in search of their next bite. The famine arrived at our door sooner than I imagined. During the second week of December, my mother milled our last pail of maize, giving us just 12 more meals. As soon as she left, I opened the storage room and peered inside. All that remained were empty bags piled in a corner like dirty laundry. I tried to remember what the room had looked like when it was full, but I just didn't have the energy. That night, my father called the family into the living room. Given our situation, he said, I've decided it's better if we go down to one meal per day. It's the only way we'll make it. My sisters and I argued over which meal it would be. We should have breakfast, said Aisha, who was 12. I like lunch, shouted Doris. No, my father said, it will be supper. It's easier to keep your mind off hunger during the day, but no person should have to sleep with an empty stomach. We'll eat at night. My stomach was used to being fed every time it grumbled. Having no breakfast was one thing, but not eating breakfast or lunch was a lesson in patience and pain. It was even harder on my younger sisters who didn't understand why no one would feed them. Did you hear me, Mama? They cried, I'm hungry. Yes, dear, my mother said, I heard you. Just try to hold on. Dinner didn't come soon enough that first night. My father lit a lantern in the living room and we all gathered around watching the black soot spiral toward the ceiling. As usual, we started with hand washing. My sister Doris walked around to each person and poured the warm water over their hands while they lathered up with soap and rinsed over the basin. When washing was finished, finally my mother fetched two bowls and lifted the lids. Try to make it last, she said, and joined us on the floor. The first bowl contained Sema, which, but instead of a mountain of steaming cakes, there was one gray blob. It didn't even look edible. In the second bowl, my mother had prepared a small portion of mustard greens. We passed the food around and didn't even bother using plates. The meal was over in minutes. With less than one pail of flour remaining, I knew that only a miracle could save us, or at least a very good idea. The next morning, my father announced his brilliant plan. It didn't make any sense to me. In fact, it seemed like the worst idea I'd ever heard, but then he explained how we'd use the flour to make cakes to sell in the market. The extra money we earned would go toward buying more food. It was a huge gamble. That morning, my mother mixed the last of our flour with some soy powder and sugar and made zigumu cakes, which resembled small biscuits. 
The delicious smell of them baking over the fire drifted through the sheets of rain and onto the road, stopping the Ganyu men in their tracks. Even the birds became brave and gathered outside the kitchen to sing a woeful, woeful tune. The aroma seemed to enter my body like a spirit, slithering into my empty belly and stretching its arms and legs. Normally, when my mother made zigumu cakes, she'd let me scrape the bowl with my fingers. In Malawi, this was such a cherished privilege that kids had given it a name, VP, after Vapasi pot, meaning the bottom of the pot. Mama, VP, we'd ask, our eyes round with anticipation. But this time was different. My mother used every last drop of batter as if wiping it clean with a sponge. No VP, only empty pot. That night, my father made a stand from a broken table and an iron sheet. My mother opened for business the following morning, selling her cakes for three kwacha each. Kwacha. The cakes were heavy and lasted longer in the belly than some of the other cheap breads for sale in the market. If a person didn't have enough money to buy flour, the cakes were their only option. That first day, she sold out in less than 20 minutes. I'm going to stop reading there and we'll continue reading chapter 5.